Section 12 of Jailed for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded for LibriVox by Kate West. Jailed for Freedom by Doris Stevens. Part 3. Chapter 11. Administration Terrorism. The administration tried in another way to stop picketing. It sentenced the leader, Alice Paul, to the absurd and desperate sentence of seven months in the Washington jail for, quote-unquote, obstructing traffic. With the leader safely behind bars for so long a time, the agitation would certainly weaken, so thought the administration. To their great surprise, however, in the face of that reckless and extreme sentence, the longest picket line of the entire campaign formed at the White House in the late afternoon of November 10th. Forty-one women picketed in protest against this wanton persecution of their leader, as well as against the delay in passing the amendment. Face to face with an embarrassing number of prisoners, the administration used its wits and decided to reduce the number to a manageable size before imprisoning this group. Failing of that, they tried still another way out. They resorted to imprisonment with terrorism. In order to show how widely representative of the nation this group of pickets was, I give its personnel complete. First group, New York, Mrs. John Winters Brannan, Miss Belle Scheinberg, Mrs. L. H. Hornsby, Mrs. Paula Jacoby, Mrs. Cynthia Cohen, Miss M. Tilden Burrett, Miss Dorothy Day, Mrs. Henry Butterworth, Miss Cora Week, Miss P. B. Johns, Miss Elizabeth Hamilton, Mrs. Ella O. Guilford, New York City, Miss Amy Jungling, Miss Hattie Kruger, Buffalo. Second group, Massachusetts, Mrs. Agnes H. Moray, Brookline, Mrs. William Burgeon and Miss Camilla Whitcomb, Worcester, Miss Ella Feindison, Lawrence, Miss L. J. C. Daniels, Boston, New Jersey, Mrs. George Scott, Montclair, Pennsylvania, Mrs. Lawrence Lewis, Miss Elizabeth McShane, Miss Catherine Lincoln, Philadelphia. Third group, California, Mrs. William Kent, Kentfield, Oregon, Miss Alice Graham, Miss Betty Graham. Portland, Utah, Mrs. R. B. K., Mrs. T. C. Robertson, Salt Lake City, Colorado, Mrs. Eva Decker, Colorado Springs, Mrs. Genevieve Williams, Manitou. Fourth group, Indiana, Mrs. Charles W. Barnes, Indianapolis, Oklahoma, Mrs. Kate Stafford, Oklahoma City, Minnesota, Mrs. J. H. Short, Minneapolis, Iowa, Mrs. A. N. Beam, Des Moines, Mrs. Catherine Martinet, Eagle Grove. Fifth group, New York, Miss Lucy Burns, New York City, District of Columbia, Mrs. Harvey Wiley, Louisiana, Mrs. Alice M. Kosu, New Orleans, Maryland, Miss Mary Bartlett Dixon, Easton, Miss Julia Emery, Baltimore. Florida, Mrs. Mary I. Nolan, Jacksonville. There were exceptionally dramatic figures in this group. Mrs. Mary Nolan of Florida, 73 years old, frail in health but militant in spirit, 
said she had come to take her place with the women struggling for liberty in the same spirit that her revolutionary ancestor, Eliza Zane, had carried bullets to the fighters in the war for independence. Mrs. Harvey Wiley looked appealing and beautiful, as she said in court, We took this action with great consecration of spirit, with willingness to sacrifice personal liberty for all the women of the country. Judge Maloney addressed the prisoners with many high-sounding words about the seriousness of obstructing the traffic in the national capital, and inadvertently slipped into a discourse on Russia and the dangers of revolution. We always wondered why the government was not clever enough to eliminate political discourses, at least during trials, where the offenders were charged with breaking only a slight regulation. But their minds were too full of the political aspect of our offense to conceal it. The truth of the situation is that the court has not been given power to meet it, the judge lamented. It is very, very puzzling. I find you guilty of the offense charged, but will take the matter of sentence under advisement. And so the guilty pickets were summarily released. The administration did not relish the incarceration of 41 women for another reason than limited housing accommodations. 41 women representing 16 states in the Union might create a considerable political dislocation. But these same 41 women were determined to force the administration to take its choice. It would allow them to continue their peaceful agitation, or it could stand the reaction which was bound to come from imprisoning them. And so the 41 women returned to the White House gates to resume their picketing. They stood guard several minutes before the police, taken unawares, could summon sufficient force to arrest them, and commandeer enough cars to carry them to police headquarters. As the Philadelphia North American pointed out, there was no disorder. The crowd waited with interest and in a noticeably friendly spirit to see what would happen. There were frequent references to the pluck of the silent sentinels. The following morning, the women were ordered by Judge Maloney to come back on Friday. I am not yet prepared to try the case. Logic dictated that either we had a right to stand at the gates with our banners, or we did not have that right, and the administration was not interested in logic. It had to stop picketing. Whether this was done legally or illegally, logically or illogically, clumsily or dexterously, was of secondary importance. Picketing must be stopped. Using their welcome release to continue their protest, the women again marched with their banners to the White House in an attempt to picket. Again, they were arrested. No one who saw that line will ever forget the impression it made, not only on friends of the suffragists, but on the general populace of Washington, to see these women force with such magnificent defiance the hand of a wavering administration. On the following morning, they were sentenced from six days to six months in prison. Miss Burns received six months. In pronouncing the lightest sentence upon Mrs. Nolan, the judge said that he did so on account of her age. He urged her, however, to pay her fine, hinting that jail might be too severe on her and might bring on death. At this suggestion, tiny Mrs. Nolan pulled herself up on her toes and said with great dignity, Your Honor, I have a nephew fighting for democracy in France. He is offering his life for his country. I should be ashamed if I did not join these brave women in their fight for democracy in America. I should be proud of the honor to die in prison for the liberty of American women.
even the judge seemed moved by her beautiful and simple spirit. In spite of the fact that the women were sentenced to serve their sentences in the district jail, where they would join Miss Paul and her companions, all save one were immediately sent to Occoquan workhouse. It had been agreed that the demand to be treated as political prisoners inaugurated by previous pickets should be continued, and that failing to secure such rights they would unanimously refuse to eat food or do prison labor. Any words of mine would be inadequate to tell the story of the prisoners' reception at the Occoquan workhouse. The following is the statement of Mrs. Nolan, dictated upon her release in the presence of Mr. Dudley Field Malone. It was about half-past seven at night when we got to Occoquan workhouse. A woman, Mrs. Herndon, was standing behind a desk when we were brought into this office and there were five or six men also in the room. Miss Lewis, who spoke for all of us, said she must speak to Whitaker, the superintendent of the place. You'll sit here all night then, said Miss Herndon. I saw men begin to come up on the porch, but I didn't think anything about it. Miss Harrington called my name, but I did not answer. Suddenly, the door literally burst open, and Whitaker burst in like a tornado. Some men followed him. We could see a crowd of them on the porch. They were not in uniform. They looked as much like tramps as anything. They seemed to come in and in and in. One had a face that made me think of an orangutan. Miss Lewis stood up. Some of us had been sitting and lying on the floor. We were so tired. She had hardly begun to speak, saying we demanded to be treated as political prisoners. When Whitaker said, you shut up. I have men here to handle you. Then he shouted, seize her. I turned and saw men spring toward her. And then someone screamed, they have taken Mrs. Lewis. A man sprung at me and caught me by the shoulder. I'm used to remembering a bad foot, which I've had for years. And I remember saying, I come with you, don't drag me, I have a lame foot. But I was jerked down the steps and away into the dock. I didn't have my feet on the ground. I guess that saved me. I heard Mrs. Cousseau, who was being drugged along with me, call, Be careful of your foot! And out of doors, it was very dark. The building to which they took us was lighted up as we came to it. I only remember the American flag flying above it because it caught the light from a window in the wing. We were rushed into a large room that we found opened on a large hall with stone cells on each side. They were perfectly dark. Punishment cells is what they called them. Mine was filthy. It had no window save a slip at the top and no furniture but an iron bed covered with a thin straw pad and an open toilet flushed from outside the cell. In the hall outside was a man called Captain Reams. He had on a uniform and was brandishing a thick stick and shouting as we were shoved into the corridor. Damn, you get in here. I saw Dorothy Day brought in. She is a frail girl. And the two men handling her were twisting her arms up above her head. 
Then suddenly, they lifted her up and banged her down over the arm of an iron bench. Twice. As they ran me past, she was lying there with her arms out. And we heard one of the men yell, The suffrager! My mother ain't no suffrager! I put you through! At the end of the corridor, they pushed me through a door. Then I lost my balance and fell against the iron bed. Mrs. Kosu struck the wall. And then they threw in two mats and two dirty blankets. There was no light but from the corridor. The door was barred from top to bottom, and the walls and floors were brick or stone cemented over. Mrs. Kosu would not let me lie on the floor. She put me on the couch and stretched out on the floor on one of the two pads they threw in. We had only lain there a few minutes trying to get our breath when Mrs. Lewis, doubled over and handled like a sack of something, was literally thrown in. Her head struck the iron bed. We thought she was dead. She didn't move. And we were crying over her as we lifted her to the pad on my bed when we heard Miss Burns call, Where is Mrs. Nolan? I replied, I am here. Mrs. Kosu called out, They've just thrown Mrs. Lewis in here too. At this, Mr. Whitaker came to the door and told us not to dare to speak or he would put the brace and bit in our mouths and the straitjacket on our bodies. We were so terrified, we kept very still. Mrs. Lewis was not unconscious. She was only stunned. But Mrs. Kosu was desperately ill as the night wore on. She had a bad heart attack and was then vomiting. We called and called. We asked them to send our own doctor because we thought she was dying. And they, the guards, paid no attention. A cold wind blew in on us from the outside, and we three lay there shivering and only half conscious until morning. One at a time come out, we heard someone call at the bar door early in the morning. I went first. I bade them both goodbye. I didn't know where I was going or whether I would ever see them again. And they took me to Mr. Whitaker's office, where he called my name. You're Mrs. Mary Nolan, said Whitaker. You're posted, said I. Are you willing to put on prison dress and go to the workroom, said he. I said no. Don't you know now that I am Mr. Whitaker, the superintendent, he asked. Is there any age limit to your workhouse, I said. Would a woman of 73 or a child of two be sent here? I think I made him think. He motioned to the guard. Get a doctor to examine her, he said. In the hospital cottage, I was met by Mrs. Harrington and taken to a little room with two white beds and a hospital table. You can lie down if you want to, she said. I took off my coat and hat. I just lay down on the bed and fell into a kind of stupor. It was nearly noon, and I had had no food offered me since the sandwiches our friends brought us in the courtroom at noon the day before. The doctor came in and examined my heart. Then he examined my lame foot. It had a long blue bruise above the ankle. Well, they had knocked me as they took me across the night before. He asked me what caused the bruise. I said those friends when they drugged me up to the cell last night. 
It was painting me. He asked if I wanted liniment, and I said only hot water. They brought that, and I noticed they did not lock the door. A Negro trusty was there, and I fell back again into the same stupor. The next day, they brought me some toast and a plate of food, the first I'd been offered in over 36 hours. I just looked at the food and motioned it away. It made me sick. I was released on the sixth day and passed the dispensary as I came out. There were a group of my friends, Mrs. Brannon and Mrs. Moray, and many others. They had on coarse striped dresses and big grotesque heavy shoes. I burst into tears as they led me away. Signed, Mary I. Nolan, November 21st, 1917. The day following their commitment to Occoquan, Mr. O'Brien of Council was directed to see the women to ascertain their condition. Friends and relatives were alarmed, as not a line of news had been allowed to penetrate to the world. Mr. O'Brien was denied admission and forced to come back to Washington without any report whatsoever. The next day, Mr. O'Brien again attempted to see his clients, as did also the mother of Miss Matilda Young, the youngest prisoner in Mr. Whitaker's care, and Miss Catherine Moray, who went asking to see her mother. Miss Murray was held under armed guard half a mile from the prison. Admission was denied to all of them. The terrible anxiety at headquarters was not relieved the third day by a report brought from the workhouse by one of the Marines stationed at Quantico Station, Virginia, who had been summoned to the workhouse on the night the women arrived. He brought news that unknown tortures were going on. Mr. O'Brien immediately forced his way through by a court order and brought back to headquarters the astounding news of the campaign of terrorism which had started the moment the prisoners had arrived and which was being continued at that moment. Miss Lucy Burns, who had assumed responsibility for the welfare of the women, had managed to secrete small scraps of paper and a tiny pencil and jot down briefly the day-by-day -day events at the workhouse. This week of brutality, which rivaled old Russia if it did not outstrip it, was almost the blackest page in the administration's cruel fight against women. Here are some of the scraps of Miss Burns' day-by-day -day log, smuggled out of the workhouse. Miss Burns is so gifted a writer that I feel apologetic for using these scraps in their raw form, but I know she will forgive me. Wednesday November 14th. Demanded to see Superintendent Whitaker. Request refused. Mrs. Herndon, the matron, said we would have to wait up all night. One of the men guards said he would put us in a sardine box and put mustard on us. Superintendent Whitaker came at 9 p.m. He refused to hear our demand for political rights. Seized by guards from behind, flung off my feet, and shot out of the room. All of us were seized by men-guards and dragged to cells in men's part. Dorothy Day was roughly used, back-twisted. Mrs. Mary A. Nolan, 73-year-old picket from Jacksonville, Florida, flung into cell. Mrs. Lawrence Lewis shot by my cell. I slept with Dorothy Day in a single bed. I was handcuffed all night and manacled to the bars part of the time for asking the others how they were and was threatened with a straitjacket and a buckle-gag. Thursday, November 16th, asked for Whitaker, who came. He seized Julia Emery by the back of her neck and threw her into the room very brutally. 
She is a little girl. I asked for counsel to learn the status of the case. I was told to shut up, and was again threatened with a straitjacket and a buckle gag. Later, I was taken to put on prison clothes, refused, and resisted strenuously. I was then put in a room where delirium tremens patients are kept. On the seventh day, when Miss Lucy Burns and Mrs. Lawrence Lewis were so weak that Mr. Whitaker feared their death, they were forcibly fed and taken immediately to the jail in Washington. Of the experience, Mrs. Lewis wrote, I was seized, and laid on my back where five people held me. A young colored woman leaping upon my knees which seemed to break under the weight. Dr. Gannon then forced the tube through my lips and down my throat, I gasping and suffocating with the agony of it. I didn't know where to breathe from, and everything turned black when the fluid began pouring in. I was moaning and making the most awful sounds quite against my will, for I did not wish to disturb my friends in the next room. Finally, the tube was withdrawn. I lay motionless. After a while I was dressed and carried in a chair to a waiting automobile, laid on the back seat, and driven into Washington to the jail hospital. Previous to the feeding, I had been forcibly examined by Dr. Gannon, I protesting that I wished a woman physician. Of this experience, Miss Burns wrote on tiny scraps of paper. Wednesday, twelve midnight. Yesterday afternoon, at about four or five, Mrs. Lewis and I were asked to go to the operating room. Went there, and found our clothes. Told we were to go to Washington. No reason, as usual. When we were dressed, Dr. Gannon appeared, and said he wished to examine us. Both refused. Were dragged through halls by force, our clothing partly removed by force, and we were examined, heart-tested, blood pressure and pulse taken. Of course such data is of no value after such a struggle." Dr. Gannon told me then I must be fed, was stretched on bed, two doctors, matron, four colored prisoners present, Whitaker in hall. I was held down by five people at legs, arms, and head. I refused to open mouth. Gannon pushed tube up left nostril. I turned and twisted my head all I could, but he managed to push it up. It hurts nose and throat very much, and makes nose bleed freely. Tube drawn out, covered with blood. Operation leaves one very sick. Food dumped directly into stomach feels like a ball of lead. Left nostril, throat, and muscles of neck very sore all night. After this, I was brought into the hospital in an ambulance. Mrs. Lewis and I placed in same room, slept hardly at all. This morning Dr. Ladd appeared with his tube. Mrs. Lewis and I said we would not be forcibly fed, said he would call in men guards and force us to submit, went away, and we were not fed at all this morning. We hear them outside now cracking eggs. With Miss Burns and Miss Lewis, who were regarded as leaders in the hunger strike protest, removed to the district jail, Mr. Whitaker and his staff at Occoquan began a systematic attempt to break down the morale of the hunger strikers. Each one was called to the mat and interrogated. Will you work? Will you put on prison clothes? Will you eat? Will you stop picketing? Will you go without paying your fine and promise never to pick it again? How baffled he must have been. The answer was definite and final. Their resistance was superb. One of the few warning incidents during the gray days of our imprisonment was the unexpected sympathy and understanding of one of the government doctors. 
wrote Miss Betty Graham of Portland, Oregon. This is the most magnificent sacrifice I have ever seen made for a principal, he said. I never believed that American women would care so much about freedom. I have seen women in Russia undergo extreme suffering for their ideals, but unless I had seen this with my own eyes, I would never have believed it. My sister hunger-struck in Russia, where she was imprisoned for refusing to reveal the whereabouts of two of her friends indicted for a government offense. She was fed after three days. You girls are on your ninth day of hunger strike and your condition is critical. It is a great pity that such women should be subjected to this treatment. I hope that you will carry your point and force the hand of the government soon. The mother of Matilda Young, the youngest picket, anxiously appealed to Mr. Tumulty, secretary to President Wilson and a family friend, to be allowed to see the president and ask for a special order to visit her daughter. Failing to secure this, she went daily to Mr. Tumulty's office asking if he himself would not intercede for her. Mr. Tumulty assured her that her daughter was in safe hands and that she need give herself no alarm. The stories of the inhuman treatment at Occoquan were false and that she must not believe them. Finally, Mrs. Young pleaded to be allowed to send additional warm clothing to her daughter, whom she knew to be too lightly clad for the vigorous temperature of November. Mr. Tumulty assured her that the women were properly clothed and refused to permit the clothing to be sent. The subsequent stories of the women showed what agonies they had endured because they were inadequately clad from the dampness of the cells into which they were thrown. Mrs. John Winters Brannan was among the women who endured the Night of Terror. Mrs. Brannan is the daughter of Charles A. Dana, founder of the New York Sun, and that great American patriot of liberty who was a trusted associate and counselor of Abraham Lincoln. Mrs. Brannan, lifelong suffragist, is an aristocrat of intellect and feeling who has always allied herself with libertarian movements. This was her second term of imprisonment. She wrote a comprehensive affidavit of her experience. After narrating the events which led up to the attack, she continues, Superintendent Whitaker then shouted out in a loud tone of voice, Seize these women! Take them off! That one! That one! Take her off! The guards rushed forward and an almost indescribable scene of violent confusion ensued. I saw one of the guards seize her, Lucy Burns, by the arms, twist or force them back of her, and one or two other guards seize her by the shoulders, shaking her violently. I then took up my heavy sealskin coat, which was lying by, and put it on in order to prepare myself if attacked. I was trembling at the time, and was stunned with terror at the situation as it had developed, and said to the superintendent, I will give my name under protest, and started to walk towards the desk whereon lay the books. The superintendent shouted to me, Oh, no, you won't. Don't talk about protest. I won't have any of that nonsense. I saw the guards seizing the different women of the party with the utmost violence, the furniture being overturned in the room a scene of the utmost disturbance. I saw Miss Lincoln lying on the floor with every appearance of having just been thrown down by the two guards who were standing over her in a menacing attitude. Seeing the general disturbance, I gave up all idea of giving my name at the desk and instinctively joined my companions to go with them and share whatever was in store for them. 
the whole group of women were thrown dragged or herded out of the office onto the porch down the steps to the ground and forced to cross the road to the administration building during all of this time superintendent whittaker was directing the whole attack all of us were thrown into different cells in the men's prison i being put in one with four other women the cell containing a narrow bed and one chair which was immediately removed during the time that we were being forced into the cells the guards kept up an uproar shouting banging the iron doors clanging bars making a terrifying noise i and one of my companions were lying down on the narrow bed on which were a blanket and one pillow the door of the cell was opened and a mattress and a blanket being thrown in the door was violently banged too my other companions arranged the mattress on the floor and lay down covering themselves with the blanket I looked across the corridor and saw Miss Lincoln and asked her whether she was all right, being anxious to know whether she had been hurt by the treatment in the office building. Instantly, Superintendent Whittaker rushed forward, shouting at me. Stop that! Not another word from your mouth or I will handcuff you, gag you, and put you in a straitjacket. I wish to state again that the cells into which we were put were situated in the men's prison. There was no privacy for the women, and if any of us wished to undress, we would be subject to the view or observation of the guards who remained in the corridor, and who could at any moment look at us. Furthermore, the water-closets were in full view of the corridor, where Superintendent Whittaker and the guards were moving about. The flushing of these closets could only be done from the corridor, and we were forced to ask the guards to do this for us, the men who had shortly before attacked us. None of the matrons or women attendants appeared at any time that night. No water was brought to us for washing, no food was offered to us. I was exhausted by what I had seen and been through, and spent the night in absolute terror of further attack, and of what might still be in store for us. I thought of the young girls who were with us and feared for their safety. The guards acted brutal in the extreme, incited to their brutal conduct towards us by the superintendent. I thought of the offence with which we had been charged, merely that of obstructing traffic, and felt that the treatment that we had received was out of all proportion to the offence with which we were charged, and that the superintendent, the matron, and guards would not have dared to act towards us as they had acted, unless they relied upon the support of higher authorities. It seemed to me that everything had been done from the time we reached the workhouse to terrorize us, and my fear, lest the extreme of outrage would be worked upon the young girls of our party, became intense. It is impossible for me to describe the terror of that night. The affidavit then continues with the story of how Mrs. Brannan was compelled the following morning to put on prison clothes, was given a cup of skimmed milk and a slice of toast, and then taken to the sewing room where she was put to work, sewing on the underdrawers of the male prisoners. I was half fainting all of that day, and requested permission to lie down, feeling so ill, I could not sleep, having a sense of constant danger. I was almost paralyzed and in wretched physical condition. On Friday afternoon, Mrs. Herndon led us through some woods nearby for about three-quarters of a mile, seven of us being in the party. We were so exhausted and weary that we were obliged to stop constantly to rest. On our way back from the walk we heard the baying of hounds very near us in the woods. The matron said, "'You must hurry. The bloodhounds are loose.' One of the party, Miss Feindison, asked whether they would attack us, to which the matron replied, "'This is just what they would do,' and hurried us along. The baying grew louder and nearer at times, and then more distant as the dogs rushed back and forth, and this went on until we reached the sewing-room. The effect of this upon our nerves can better be imagined than described. 
every conceivable lie was tried in an effort to force the women to abandon their various form of resistance. They were told that no efforts were being made from the outside to reach them, and that their attorney had been called off of the case. Each one was told that she was the only one hunger-striking. Each one was told that all the others had put on prison clothes and were working. Although they were separated from one another, they suspected the lies and remained strong in their resistance. After Mr. O'Brien's one visit and the subsequent reports in the press, he was thereafter refused admission to the workhouse. The judge had sentenced these women to jail, but the district commissioners had ordered them committed to the workhouse. It was evident that the administration was anxious to keep this group away from Alice Paul and her companions, as they counted on handling the rebellion more easily in two groups than one. Meanwhile, the condition of the prisoners in the workhouse grew steadily worse. It was imperative that we force the administration to take them out of the custody of Superintendent Whitaker immediately. We decided to take the only course open, to obtain a writ of habeas corpus. A hurried journey by counsel to United States District Judge Waddell of Norfolk, Virginia, brought the writ. It compelled the government to bring the prisoners into court and show cause why they should not be returned to the district jail. This conservative southern judge said of the petition for the writ, It is shocking and blood-curdling. There followed a week more melodramatic than the most stirring moving picture film. Although the writ had been applied for in the greatest secrecy, a detective suddenly appeared to accompany Mr. O'Brien from Washington to Norfolk during his stay in Norfolk and back to Washington. Telephone wires at our headquarters were tapped. It was evident that the administration was cognizant of every move in this procedure before it was executed. No sooner was our plan decided upon than friends of the administration besought us to abandon the habeas corpus proceedings. One member of the administration sent an emissary to our headquarters with the following appeal. If you will only drop these proceedings, I can absolutely guarantee you that the prisoners will be removed from the workhouse to the jail in a week. In a week? They may be dead by that time, we answered. We cannot wait. But I tell you, you must not proceed. Why this mysterious week, we asked. Why not tomorrow? Why not instantly? I can only tell you that I have a positive guarantee of the district commissioners that the women will be removed. There were three reasons why the authorities wished for a week's time. They were afraid to move the women in their weakened condition, and before the end of the week they hoped to increase their facilities for forcible feeding at the workhouse. They also wished to conceal the treatment of the women, the exposure of which would be inevitable in any court proceedings. And lastly, the administration was anxious to avoid opening up the whole question of the legality of the very existence of the workhouse in Virginia. Persons convicted in the district for acts committed in violation of district law were transported to Virginia, alien territory, to serve their terms. It was a moot point whether the prisoners were so treated with sufficient warrant in law. Eminent jurists held that the district had no right to convict a person under its laws and commit that person to confinement in another state. They contended that sentence imposed upon a person for unlawful acts in the district should be executed in the district. Hundreds of persons who had been convicted in the District of Columbia and who had served their sentences in Virginia had been without money or influence enough to contest this doubtful procedure in the courts. The administration was alarmed. We quickened our pace. 
A member of the administration rushed his attorney as courier to the women in the workhouse to implore them not to consent to the habeas corpus proceedings. He was easily admitted and tried to extort from one prisoner at a time a promise to reject the plan. The women suspected his solicitude and refused to make any promise whatsoever without first being allowed to see their own attorney. We began at once to serve the writ. Ordinarily, this would be an easy thing to do, but for us, it developed into a very difficult task. A deputy marshal must serve the writ. Counsel sought a deputy. For miles around Washington, not one was to be found at his home or lodgings. None could be reached by telephone. Meanwhile, Mr. Whitaker had sped from the premises of the workhouse to the district, where he kept himself discreetly hidden for several days. When a deputy was found, six attempts were made to serve the writ, all failed. Finally, by a ruse, Mr. Whitaker was caught at his home late at night. He was aroused to a state of violent temper and made futile threats of reprisal when he learned that he must produce the suffrage prisoners at the court in Alexandria, Virginia, on the day of November 23rd. End of section 12.